This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, we discuss how we should think about infrastructure investments in the face of climate-induced migration. Remember to listen to the key messages of the episode at the end. More than 4,000 years ago, in the Indus River Valley, there were sophisticated cities with their own infrastructure, such as well-planned streets and drainage. Yet, the Harappans had moved away from there by 1800 BCE, abandoning it all to settle in the Himalayan foothills. A recent study found that the drying up of the summer monsoon rains had reduced agricultural productivity over time, and the people increasingly abandoned what they had built. The fall of the Akkadian Empire of Mesopotamia is also now believed to have some climate roots. The abrupt onset of drought and falling agricultural productivity also led to mass migrations. Investments made in the infrastructure of these civilizations were left behind and lost their value, while those in new areas, where they moved to, gained in value. While these changes occurred over a long expanse of time and a long time ago, the questions they raise are relevant for us today. As climate changes around the world, living conditions will too. How should investments in infrastructure respond? Let's find out how. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, host of Tell Me How. My guest today is Michael Oppenheimer, professor at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. We're very lucky to have you with us today. Climate-induced migration has been getting a lot of attention in recent years. And I wanted to begin today's discussion by asking you to explain what this is and why this is something that we should pay attention to. First of all, climate-induced migration has existed essentially as long as there's been human settlements and weather disturbances caused people to move. And not just weather disturbances, but long-term changes in climate patterns that have always occurred naturally. What's new today is that climate change caused by the buildup of the human-made greenhouse gases, primarily by combustion of coal oil and natural gas to fuel our industrial society, begun to cause changes in those patterns which themselves, we believe, are capable of causing large-scale movements of populations. Now, here I'm not talking about globally everybody getting up at once and moving somewhere. I'm talking about populations at many places across the globe moving in ways that they would not have otherwise. Uh, After all, mobility is a human phenomenon. We're not only used to it, but we do it anyway for lots of constructive purposes, not necessarily to flee, uh, you know, bad political situations or bad climate situations. What we do see, however, is the likelihood that climate change will impose alterations in those patterns. So we'll get more people moving at some places to other places, and we'll get routes of migration, probably which are quite different than what we've seen in the past. So that's why it's come to our attention. And if you layer on top of that, the fact that several recent extreme climate conditions, for instance, in the US Hurricane Katrina, caused the evacuation and non-return, in fact, of a large fraction of the population of New Orleans. There has been an argument that 
the large migration out of Syria and uh, other parts of the Middle East into Europe, which caused some significant degree of political turmoil that still reverberates today, had the uh, long-term drying in that region, uh, a severe drought, uh, as a contributory, if not a, an initially causative factor. So we're seeing things in front of us which make us concerned that if these sorts of situations are not handled with forethought and with great care by governments in the future, that they'll spin out of control and lead to the kind of political dislocation as we had seen in Europe over the past five years or so. Yes, and having forethought and being able to design appropriate policy, um, you know, the, those things, you can do those better when you have some idea of where the, the migration is, is going to be and anticipating um, large movements, I suppose. But that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, predicting migration patterns, the timing, the direction, the magnitude of the changes, those are not simple things to do. And there are an, a number of top-down or macro-level models and some micro-level models that look at individual or household behavior that, that try to understand migration patterns. So I'd like you to speak about these um, models that are commonly used. How do they do this? So just so everybody understands, a model is supposed to be a replica of reality. And because you can do experiments on the model that you can't do in the real world, you can use these models if they contain uh, the proper sort of laws of how things occur in reality, you can use them to project what will happen in, in the future under conditions that are similar to today, for instance, or if they're good enough models and the situation they're dealing with can be generalized enough, you can project what will happen under vastly different conditions. This is certainly true in the physical science arena where we know the basic laws of physics the difficulty in dealing with, and that's, by the way, why we're able to project the climate changes we, we've seen with some fair degree of accuracy. When you get to the question of how humans will respond to those climate changes, you're talking about quite a different kettle of fish. You're talking about laws of human behavior and our understanding of human behavior, our ability to cite particular laws is nowhere near the way it is in physics. So trying to project what could happen 20, 30, 40 years from today under much different socioeconomic conditions in many cases as people exist in today is not easy and we can't do it to any degree of accuracy now. What we can do is start to understand the sensitivities of human beings to the need or possibility of migrating under particular situations. I wouldn't take the numbers that come out of today's models very seriously, but they do illustrate tendencies. And at least that much is something that policymakers need to be aware of. So, of course, these tendencies will depend very much not just on the physical world, but they'll depend, you know, on, on policy on you know, the, the societies, the, the infrastructure, the economics of where people live. And um, we're going to get into more, uh, get into that a bit more. But could you speak a bit, um, you know, broadly speaking, what do these models show? The uh, empirical or econometric models 
show tendency to move when things get too hot or too dry. Now, whether people in their movement are responding only to the information they have about what's going on around them and how well and carefully they, are, they think about what the conditions are in the place they're going is not yet clear. And that's being explored now with what are called network models, models which ask the question, well, if someone m migrated from your village A to village B uh, 200 miles away and you maintain contact, do you use that information? That would be the, the effect of a network. And that would sharpen the ability of an individual to be able to move. They'd have better information. We don't have good answers at this point about how much that network information matters, but network models are starting to penetrate and we're starting to get that information. So there's another sort of area, which is the area of information. And there's a lot of uncertainty on what kind of information people have and how much they act upon it or whether they're anchored in various places by a tendency to want to just stay, no matter what the information is. We don't have thorough answers, and it depends on the context. An entirely different type of model is one that's very commonly used in climate change. It's called an integrated assessment model. This is a, basically a model of the global economy and how that economy responds to climate change. So it's not looking at, say, migration from Mexican villages to Mexican cities or, or migration from Mexican villages to across the U.S. border. It's looking at a bigger picture, which is how whole regions of the world respond to climate change. And migration is starting to be put in a usable way into those models. And they show some very interesting results, like people get stuck in certain areas because it looks like the impacts of climate change uh, rob the, the local economies in a way which cause people to not have enough money to be able to move. So you have to remember, people don't just move because things are bad. That's, that's kind of a push effect. Or because things are good somewhere else, that's a pull effect. They also move when they have the resources to move because it's not free. So, Michael, how does the quality of infrastructure affect how people move from where they are to where they go? So infrastructure is a critical element in understanding both when people move and what will be the effect of their moving in the future. Let me give you a few examples. If movement is going to happen and there are certain destinations that people are going to move to preferentially, for instance, places with better climate conditions than what they came from. And if the infrastructure isn't prepared to absorb those people and allow them to allow the region to economically benefit essentially from more people coming in. And here we're saying, you know, whether it's highways or whether it's railroads or airports, no matter what it is, if you put a lot of people in a new area and the area isn't set up to receive them, then uh, you get sort of not only do you have a reduced capability to take advantage of people with new skills and interest in, in working hard moving in, but you, you basically may have chaos, economic chaos because you've got overloaded systems, which all of a sudden can't handle the influx. 
But don't you think people might also might also want to migrate to places where there is good quality infrastructure and that is also one of the incentives for them to move there? I mean, it could work either way, right? Yes. In, in fact, we, you know, the basic longstanding economic theory is that people primarily move because of wage differences. They can earn more in one place and they can earn in another place, but it's not that simple. And I don't know of any study that's looked specifically at infrastructure as a key to determining where people move. But it's without doubt that people for I mean, people in the modern world, after all, a lot of people move by air transit. So you at least have to have some sort of facilities to take air traffic in the place that you head for. On the other hand, don't forget, most migration isn't international. Most migration is either seasonal in uh, developing countries uh, where people are searching for livelihood nearby, or it's urbanization, which is probably the biggest particular factor in terms of migration in the current world. And of course, urbanization being successful, both for the migrant and for the urban area, depends on there being adequate infrastructure. So at the very base of it, thinking ahead and thinking, what are the infrastructure needs going to be for areas that are likely to receive migrants is critically important. But there's a flip side to that too. Areas that people move out of frequently essentially get uh, drained of skills and talent and enough population so that the current infrastructure is even sustainable. And governments already are in a position of making decisions about how long they can maintain infrastructure in certain areas, which are, for instance, being abandoned due to flooding, which is becoming more and more common, when you know they can't afford to spend every, every penny everywhere, and all of a sudden there's half the number of people or a third the number of people that used to live in a particular place. So infrastructure planning involves not only planning for more people in some places, but it means planning for less people in other places. So can we uh, move on to the micro-region-based models that you mentioned and think specifically of some cases you may have studied, because you've done studies on specific communities and localities that are facing changes in climate or seeing a lot of weather variability. So would you speak a bit about some of these? Yeah. So one of the things we did is, a well, first of all, let me explain an agent-based model looks not at the overall statistical situation, and it doesn't look at sort of the economic equilibrium situation. What it does is it looks at the decision-making that occurs at the household level and tries to figure out how households, which have a certain number of members, a certain age structure, uh, certain economic capabilities, certain income, how they will make decisions to move or not to move as the climate changes. And there's a lot of important detail that goes into this. For instance, households generally or don't necessarily in the face of climate change or extreme climate events get up and move wholesale. Uh, They may send out members in anticipation of bad climate conditions to other places or other countries to earn income and send them back through remittances. So one reaction to the development of unfavorable climate conditions isn't necessarily the household's going to move. It may simply diversify its earning power, essentially. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a very, and so what we did is we looked at households in Bangladesh and try to understand how the threat of increased flooding, particularly near the coast, would affect people's decision to move or to stay or to find some other way to earn income in the same area. And what it turns out, despite the sort of delivered wisdom, well, as sea level rises, the coast is going to flood in Bangladesh. It's going to become harder and harder to defend the coast. Basically, it's going to become depopulated eventually. At least for most of this century, even under relatively high greenhouse gas emissions and therefore large, the higher warming scenarios, we don't see that. It's because that the growth and economic opportunity in Bangladesh, a lot of it occurs near the coast. We anticipate people staying and taking advantage of those job opportunities. So you may see a shift from rural to more urban uh, lifestyle as people look to work in urban areas, but you're, we don't think going to see a great depopulation. And that in turn has a big uh, important uh, implication for infrastructure planning means that you know the government there has to think about do they really want to start abandoning areas or if people are going to want to move there that's where the economic opportunities are do they want to take advantage of that and instead protect areas build as much coastal defenses selectively because it's not possible economically i don't think to defend the whole bangladesh coast but create defended enclaves essentially because people seem to want to stay in the coastal area and because that's where the greater wage opportunities are. Or the government might decide, well, it's still not smart. It's eventually the, the ocean is going to win, you might say. And we, the government might decide it wants to invest elsewhere. In any event, the information about what's likely to happen allows the government to have a basis for planning infrastructure, whether it's coastal defense infrastructure and in continued enhancement of transportation capability around the coastal area, or whether it's, well, we're really going to have to abandon parts of this place eventually, that is the coastal zone, and encourage development of infrastructure more inland. You know, I seem to recall that you have actually done some work estimating the infrastructure losses in some of these cases that you looked at due, you know, due to climate change, what were they? Were they large relative to other losses? If you go to a, a place that's really taken a big hit from climate and remembering that some climate effects are now also climate change effects, that is, they would not have happened without the buildup of the greenhouse gases. Uh, the, the example that been worked out the best is actually for New York City, uh, which took a beating in Hurricane Sandy in 2012. And it turns out that 10% of the flood damage, approximately, was caused by the incremental flooding due to climate change. And that caused expenses, which it caused about the whole damaging effect of the, of the hurricane in New York City, for instance, was about $20 billion. And about 10% of that is $2 billion. It's quite a lot of money. And most of that, I think, was devoted to rebuilding infrastructure like the mass transit subway system in the area that was uh, shut down for three or four days, flooded, and sections of it were devastated. And they're still repairing the system from something that happened nine years ago. So one thing you need to That's remember- a very long time. 
It's a very long time, but you cannot recover. The resources aren't there to do everything overnight. So imagine if this is New York City, what happens in poor countries? Well, you can see what happens in poor yes. countries. You can see what happens in poor parts of the United States, after all. Uh, so, And even in places where literally hundreds of billions of dollars have been poured in, for instance, southern Louisiana, around New Orleans, they're still recovering from Hurricane Katrina, which is 16 years ago. So what we do in the when we think about uh, risk is we think about the distance in time between two bad events and you think about is there any chance of recovering and the threat with climate change is that time between severe events shrinks so that an event that used to be a hundred year flood over the last century becomes a 20 year flood a 10 year flood a five year flood and then an annual flood at many coastal locations by 2050 in fact so we're seeing a development around the world where a lot of coastal locations are going to have the threat of essentially never being able to fully recover. So this is because the frequency of extreme events is increasing quite fast, right? Now, this, of course, uh, makes me think of any new investment in infrastructure needs to factor in resilience. If you're going to be seeing you know, very frequent extreme events, then the way you think about rebuilding really has to take into account how resilient it will your infrastructure will be to this uh, increased onslaught. That's a very important point. Uh, if we take the world as it's presented to us today, there's no way we could effectively deal with the current 100-year flood in a major city happening every year. But that's where we're headed. And so you have to think, okay, how can we build cities so they can deal with this? One way to do it is to build floodable infrastructure. Cities are hard to move, especially with all that value right along the coast, say, or in next to some river, uh, which is uh, flooding is also increasing. So what you wanna do is think about how you, in the future, make the existing infrastructure floodable by retrofitting it in some way, or building new infrastructure, going right down, for instance, to the sidewalks, which are floodable, which can drain easily, which can, uh, be flooded one day, let the flood water recede, and they're usable as soon as the water goes, rather than having to spend five years rebuilding them. So that, that there, are, there are examples of this in the Netherlands, there are examples of this in Denmark. Uh, this in, in uh, other countries, there's been some resistance to thinking about building floodable infrastructure, but in a lot of places, that's the only way to avoid this squeeze caused by extreme events coming so frequently that you just don't have time to rebuild everything, and then the next one is on you already. Yes, I wanted to think uh, a, a bit more about your agent-based models and what they say about human behavior, right? Because I was wondering, do people react differently depending on whether they think that whatever is happening in, in, the, in the weather, you know, is a temporary phenomenon as opposed to whether they think it's a permanent phenomenon. I, I presume they do. Yes, they do. Yeah, I mean, for instance, the events that move people quickly and in large numbers are extreme events, climate or non-climate, non-climate event like a volcano, climate event like a extreme flood. Those cause people to move right away. But they don't move far in general, and they return, except in really extreme situations, as again happened in New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina, where about a third of the population 
didn't come back. And a lot of those people are eventually going to be replaced by people who didn't come from New Orleans. So if you look, however, on the long term and think about people experiencing a trend in warming or a trend in drying, their view appears to be somewhat different. There, the reaction is more what are we going to do in the long term? In the long term, they're not going to come back because conditions are only getting worse where they are. So they want to move away. And if they're going to move away and not come back, they're going to move farther. And more international migration is a response to this kind of thinking about long-term trends. Now, a lot of what I've just said is inferred from the observation that people who respond to extreme events tend not to go too far and tend to come back. And people who are responding to long-term trends tend to stay away. We don't have a good picture of how that thinking develops and how they make those decisions. And that's why people are starting to de develop agent-based models, because it helps us get at the decision process and look at the individual factors that households decide upon. So right. before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I'd like to add that the whole purpose of thinking about why people move, the whole purpose of trying to model this behavior is to provide a basis for sensible policy. And as your particular interest here is in infrastructure. Infrastructure involves a lot of investment. It involves hopefully thinking ahead. And so I think at this point, governments need to think ahead about how to make conditions in the likely destination places for migrants better, how to make conditions in the origin places where people are leaving better, so maybe so many of them won't leave, and also to make have a base for making some hard decisions about where you're going to build new infrastructure and where you're going to let things shrivel a little bit because the climate changes that are coming are just too much to deal with. We're not, there is no one answer. It all depends on local context. It all depends on local proclivities and what individuals and individuals' countries want. But when you put it all together, it's a kind of decisions about the future that governments make all the time. And now they better fold in this question of enhanced mobility, the desire, the necessity of people to move so that they have a good livelihood for themselves and their families. Or to stay if the governments can make it easier for them to stay. Thank you very much. That was very interesting and I learned a lot. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners, here are some things we learned today. Firstly, migration, whether internal or international, responds to climate change. Large macro models that aim to predict physical changes to habitats, all the way to micro models that focus on individual or household behavior and their incentives to move, they all provide information about likely scenarios. And this is important for planning. Secondly, governments can influence how people respond to climate change by the investments they make. For example, investing in flood-proof transport infrastructure will allow more people to stay in areas affected by water level increases. Or they can choose to invest in areas which are less likely to be affected by significant climate events. Thirdly, the cost of dealing with each incident is large, and as the frequency of bad events increases, building resilience into infrastructure investments into maintenance and repair becomes a key consideration.
Thank you and bye for now.